This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. So, we're almost at the end of this book, the penultimate chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 30. Let's read these words together. David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it and had taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. Abiathar brought it to him. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in their rescue. David and the 600 men with him came to the Bezor Valley where some stayed behind. 200 of them were too exhausted to cross the valley. But David and the other 400 continued the pursuit. They found an Egyptian in a field and brought him to David. They gave him water to drink and food to eat, part of a cake of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins. He ate and was revived, for he had not eaten any food or drunk any water for three days and three nights. David asked him, who do you belong to? Where do you come from? He said, I am an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. We raided the Negev of the Carathites and territory belonged to Judah and the Negev of Caleb. And we burned Ziklag. David asked him, can you lead me down to this raiding party? He answered, swear to me before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master and I will take you down to them. He led David down and there they were scattered over the countryside, eating, drinking and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. David fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day, and none of them got away except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock, saying, This is David's plunder. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at the Bessor Valley. They came out to meet David and the men with him. As David and his men approached, he asked them how they were. But all the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers said, because they did not go out with us, we will not share with them the plunder we recovered. However, each man may take his wife and children and go. David replied, no, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. 
who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All will share alike. David made this a statute and ordinance for Israel from that day to this. When David reached Ziklag, he sent some of the plunder to the elders of Judah, who were his friends, saying, here is a gift for you from the plunder of the Lord's enemies. David sent it to those who were in Bethel, Ramoth Negev, and Jatir, to those in Aror, Sithmoth, Eshtemoah, and Rakal, to those in the towns of the Jeramalites and the Kenites, to those in Hormah, Bor, Ashan, Athok, and Hebron, and to those in all the other places where he and his men had roamed. This is the word of the Lord. And as we get into these closing chapters of 1 Samuel, you'll see that the narrator keeps on switching the camera view between what's happening to Saul and what's happening to David. In fact, these chapters are not in chronological order because chapter 30 actually happens in time sequence after chapter 31. But the narrator is deliberately contrasting Saul with David. What does the true king look like? And especially, how do these two men respond in distress? David is not a completely innocent person. Saul is not absolutely evil. But it's at their lowest points of despair and distress happening at the same time that we see the real differences between these two men. Saul, as we saw last week, turns toward the darkness, going and consulting the ghost wife at Endor, But David, at his lowest point, stretches upwards towards the light. David has spent almost a year and a half in the land of the Philistines. He'd had a loss of faith, it seems, and he'd somehow convinced himself that one day he was surely going to die at the hand of Saul. So he left the caves and wilderness of Judah and went across the border to the Philistines and offered himself to Achish, king of Gath, as a powerful mercenary. He did all this without taking the time to inquire of God to see what the Lord's will was. And it seemed initially to have gone very well for David. He'd been given the town of Ziklag way down in the south as a gift from the Philistine king. And him and his men had become freebooters, going out through the wilderness, attacking different settlements, collecting the booty and convincing the king of Gath that they were actually fighting against the towns of Judah. All had gone very well. For quite some time, they'd made off like bandits. And then things had gone wrong. They'd been summoned to fight against Saul. And David was caught in a very difficult position by which he was only rescued by what we know is divine providence. The Philistine captains refusing, absolutely refusing to have David on the field with them. David and his men had had a very narrow escape. And now they've made the three-day march southward, covering 60 miles, elated at their rescue. And very eager, I'm sure, to be back in their homes with their wives and with their children. And as they near the town, they see faint wisps of smoke. And a terrible premonition arises in their hearts. And as they come over the last rise their worst fears are realized. Ziklag has been burnt to the ground. And there is no one there to greet them. It's empty of people. And what the narrator tells us, what David and his men 
don't quite know yet is that in the absence of the men of the town, the Amalekite raiders have swept in from the south. They've taken advantage with their intelligence of the Philistine mobilization far to the north, and they have taken the chance to strike in the rear. And they've shown up and they found sleepy little Ziklag completely undefended. Not a man around to protect the city. And we can imagine the children playing outside that morning, looking up and seeing out of the wilderness a cloud of dust as the bandit horde emerges from the desert and falls upon the little town. And the Amalekites had seized every animal, every possession worth taking. They'd rounded up every last woman and child in the town to use or to sell as slaves. And then they'd abandon the town and see it roaring up in flames behind them as they march southward as far as possible to the safety of their desert hideout. The 600 followers of David who come across the scene of devastation are tough, battle-hardened men. And they had come to David as discontented people from the edges of society, debtors and even criminals. But under David, they'd begun to settle down. They'd begun to make a life for themselves. They'd built homes. They'd married. They had children. They'd begun to care, even to love. And now they stand there staring in disbelief at the charred, smoking ruins of their lives. And they are overcome by black grief and despair. And the narrator tells us that David and his men wept until they had no strength left to weep, tearing at their faces, clawing at their hair, collapsed on the ground. And then the grief finds focus and turns into rage. And the men start speaking among themselves, this is all the fault of our leader. We were loyal. We followed David. We've never disappointed him, but he's the one who has brought us to this place. He's exposed us and our family to this danger. Oh yes, David had been very pleased with his own cunning and his little scheme of looting all these enemy cities and deceiving the Philistines. But now David stands there having destroyed the homes and families and lives of all 600 of his men who had so foolishly put their trust in him. And there's a dangerous Murmur that begins to rise among the broken homes. Bitter talk of beating David to death with rocks, pelting him with stones, venting their despair until there's nothing left of their captain but a broken, unrecognizable heap on the ground. It's a very dangerous place for David. And remarkably... So remarkably, this is also a true turning point in his life. For a year and a half, really, it seems like David had almost forgotten about God. He doesn't speak of the Lord at all in his 16 months in Philistia. He's trusting in his own flesh, his own cunning, his own cleverness. But now, in deep crisis and danger, the narrator tells us, but David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God.
Now, I suppose that's a lot easier to do when you have a clean conscience. When you can stand before God and say, you know what, God, I'm in this situation, but I have acted in integrity before you. I've been following your will. I've been obeying your commands. I've been loyal in your service. I've not swerved to the right or to the left. And therefore, God, I feel injustice that I have some claim upon you to act on my behalf. Respond to me according to my integrity. This is not David's situation. He does not have a clean conscience before God. He has not been acting in loyalty and integrity. David has wandered from the way. And so, in a way, there's a greater test of faith for David here because he's testing and exercising his faith in the forgiveness of God. He has nothing in his hands to bring to God. He's coming completely empty, and all he can plead before God is that, Lord, you are a God of grace for the sinner. You are generous to those who forget you. He's strengthening his soul in the God who is a very present help in times of trouble, not just for those who are faithful and remember him, but also for those who are faithless and lose the way. Those of us who mess up, those of us who find ourselves in terrible situations of our own making for which no one can take the blame but ourselves. But yet David, despite this, presses in to strengthen himself in God. The NIV translated, translates it as he found strength in God, but it's really more active than that. He strengthened himself in God. He wasn't just standing there and then the strength from God just suddenly overwhelmed him as he stood there passively surrendering himself to something coming from the outside. David deliberately and with effort and with discipline strengthened his soul in God. It took effort to wrench himself back to a true orientation Godward. David strengthened himself. And there was a time in the wilderness many chapters ago, you might recall this, when his friend Jonathan had visited David at a point of despair, and Jonathan had strengthened David's hand in God. But now Jonathan's not here, and David doesn't realize it, but Jonathan has died in battle. It's a wonderful gift to have friends who show up and strengthen our hand in God. And may we have the grace to be that kind of friend ourselves. But there comes a time when we need the maturity to speak to our own souls and to strengthen ourselves in God. Child psychologists talk about self-soothers. Right? Children who learn when they're crying, when they're upset, to kind of fix their own problem and find comfort for themselves instead of depending needily on, on, on other people. And there's something about maturing in the faith that requires that we become spiritually resilient people. People who are able to take on severe blows without staggering and falling. Strengthening yourself in God requires a deep knowledge of God's character and an intimate awareness of God's promises. 
And David, despite his wandering, was a man who spent time with his God. Delighting in God, feeding on God, gazing on the face of God, worshiping before God, soaking in his word, wrestling God by faith. And now, at his moment of crisis, his faith and his memory summons all that up before his eyes so he can ride out the storm. Back in March, just before this lockout happened, Michelle began building up our emergency supply cupboard. In our little entrance hallway below the court, below the, you know, the coats, there's a little cupboard, and she began ordering Glovo order after Glovo order, putting in bottles of oil and dried beans and canned tuna and peanut butter and all sorts of things. She filled up bottles of water. We have batteries set aside. All these things so that when the crisis comes, we can ride it out. And I think there's a spiritual lesson there. Because any sermon you hear on a given Sunday may have zero application for that day or that week or even that year. And any random Bible passage you read this morning, you may be wondering, how on earth does this apply to my situation right now? And it usually doesn't. But what we're doing is we're stocking up our little supply cupboard, our emergency resources. So that when the power goes out and when the water shuts off and the stores are empty, you've got something to fall back on so you can ride out the storm. It's usually too late when the crisis comes to begin learning about God. He's gracious, of course, but now is the time during the seven fat years that we stock up and we fatten ourselves in God. We get to know who God is and what he has promised and what his word says so that when the difficulty comes, we have something that we can draw out of and feed our faith with. There's one little word here that I want to emphasize in David strengthening himself in God. Because verse 6 says, David found strength in the Lord his God. His God. And Martin Luther said, a great deal of true religion is found in the personal possessive pronouns. Not just the Lord God, not just the God of Israel, not just the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Saul believed in that God. He was willing to speak of that God. But Saul was not a man who could or would say, this is the Lord's my God. David has that kind of relationship with God where he has seized both hands on God as his personal possession. Listen to the first two verses of Psalm 18. I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And if you are counting the word my, the little word my appears eight times in those two verses. If we believe in God as a distant abstraction, as a set of theological principles, as a general reality, we're not going to survive through the storm. But if we know God in intimate relationship, if we've laid hold of our hands on him by faith, and if we can say, this God 
belongs to me. He's my God and I belong to him. We can endure anything. I want to read with you just a paragraph that Alexander McLaren wrote 100 years ago about this passage. He says this, There was only one possession in all the world except his body and the clothes he stood in that David could call his own at that moment. Everything else was gone. His property was carried off by raiders. His home was smoldering embers. But the Amalekites had not stolen God from him. And though he could no longer say, my house, my city, my possessions, he could say, my God. And McLaren goes on to say, whatever else we lose, as long as we have him, we are rich. And whatever else we possess, we are poor as long as we have not him. And we have an advantage David did not have because we stand in the pure light of the gospel of Christ. And we know where we ought to know that Jesus died on the cross, he rose from the dead, He's seated at the right hand of God and reigning over the world for us, for me. And our only comfort in life and in death is that we're not our own, but we belong in life and in death and body and soul to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, and he belongs to us. He belongs to me. And so David, surrounded by his own followers who are ready to beat him to death, strengthens his heart in God. And once David has secured himself in God, his very first action is to inquire of the Lord. His very first question is, Lord, what is your will for me? And he asks Abiathar to come and bring the ephod, and he wants to inquire of the Lord. In stark contrast to Saul, who's going down to the ghost wife, to the spirit mistress, to inquire of the dead, David goes to the living God, and he receives an emphatic answer from God. Pursue them. You will certainly overtake them, and you will succeed in the rescue. And David, through this experience, is filled with fresh faith in the midst of crisis. And the text doesn't tell us, but it must have required a tremendous charismatic gift of leadership for David to stand up to his men, his mutinous men, to get them to drop their stones and follow him on a quest into the wilderness. And these 600 men, without resting, head south into dangerous and unfamiliar terrain. David does not know where he's going. He doesn't even know who he's chasing. The Amalekites have not left a business card, after all, in the ruined city. All David has is sheer trust that somehow, some way or the other, God will direct them. And notice, by the way, that David's faith in God results in exhausting efforts. David trusting God means incredible exertion for him and his men. It doesn't mean just sitting there, putting their hands behind their back and waiting for God to drop their families and their possessions out of the sky. It means 
that they need to charge southward and spend all of their energy to act out the miracle that God has for them. So they head south. Without resting, they head south. Without resting, after three days of marching, they head south. And 15 miles south of Ziklag, they arrive at the brook Bessor. And Bessor is a wadi. It's a dry riverbed, 100 meters wide, with steep cliffs of a ravine on either side. And David has been pushing his men to their limit, to their absolute limit. They've had no rest after their exhausting march from the battlefield. They're emotionally destroyed, and now the legs of 200 of his soldiers have given out. They're just physically unable to move any further. They're desperate. They want to rescue their wives and their children, but they simply cannot will themselves to take one more step with David. So David's already small raiding force of 600 men is reduced by a third as he leaves 200 of them behind to guard the baggage and protect the rear, and he pushes on with his 400 men. They're headed south into dry, open country. They're following a cold scent. They're days behind on the chase, and there are no clues as to which direction they ought to head. And then the scouts stumble across a dying Egyptian in the middle of absolutely nowhere, and they bring him to David. They give him bread and water. They give him a bit of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And it's interesting that despite David's incredible hurry, he stops and slows down to take care of a foreigner in need. Mindful of God's command to take care of the sojourner and the foreigner. Deuteronomy 23, do not despise an Egyptian, specifically because you resided as foreigners in their country. And in a true kingly spirit, David stops and shows care and generosity to a stranger, an enemy in fact, who's in need. Well, the man's strength revives. He answers David's questions. He tells his story. He's an Egyptian slave. He's attached to this Amalekite raiding party. This party has made a great loop, left a swath of destruction behind them. And the very last thing they had done was to burn Ziklag to the ground. And now they're headed back. And somehow along the way, this Egyptian slave had fallen ill and he'd been discarded by his, by his owner, his master, because he was slowing down the getaway. And it's a disturbing reminder, really, of how inhumane these Amalekites are, how little care they had over what they thought of simply as their property. And David's men must have exchanged concerned glances, imagining how their wives and their children were suffering as slaves and captives. David has one question. Will you help me find the raiding party? And as long as David swears not to kill the slave or turn him back to his master, the Egyptian is more than willing to guide David's men straight to the bandit's hideout. So, David entrusts his entire military operation to a stranger he's known for less than an hour, a foreigner, in fact, an enemy who's helped to burn down his own town. And yet, in this seemingly random occurrence, David recognizes the providence of God at work, the mysterious hands of God. 
And I think what's remarkable about this is the timing of it all. Because three days earlier, when this man had fallen sick, David had been with the Philistine army about to go into battle against Saul. And he'd been miraculously delivered by God, kind of inciting the Philistine commanders to be suspicious of David. And even as God is delivering David from one disaster, he's already setting up David for deliverance from a crisis that David isn't even expecting yet. Three days beforehand, God is already causing this Egyptian to be sick and discarded in that exact spot so that when David shows up, he'll find his next deliverance already scheduled in advance by God. So, armed with this information, David and his men swoop down on the Amalekite camp. They find the Amalekite army just sprawled out over the countryside, drinking, singing, dancing, partying, completely secure and unguarded, imagining that David and his men are far away to the north with the Philistines. And David's little army falls upon the Amalekites like the wrath of God. They fight them all day. There's complete victory. The few survivors gallop away on their camels, leaving all their booty to David. Nothing is missing. Nothing is gone. David has recovered everything. And we can imagine the joy with which husbands embraced their wives, fathers scooped up their little boys and girls, and every last captive has been returned to them. And these men must have been absolutely bone-tired. But in the joy of victory, all that is forgotten. And they laugh in celebration at this miracle that they've experienced. And suddenly David, who they've been ready to stone the day before, is the hero of the story. And these men lead all this booty out, declaring this is David's spoil. But the joyful occasion is about to be ruined because the army marches back the next day to Bessor, to the brook, to link back up with the 200 exhausted men they've left behind to guard the baggage. And these men are overjoyed to see David coming back victorious and David greets them and checks to make sure that everyone's okay. But not everyone in the story is as generous and kind-hearted as David. Because even as they're marching back, there are, there are wicked and worthless men, even in David's army, who are resentful about sharing the plunder. And look, they reason, these 200 didn't share in the risk. They didn't join in the fighting. They didn't put all their necks on the line. They didn't defeat the Amalekites. We, 400, we did that by ourselves without them. We'll let them take their wives and kids, of course. We don't want them. But the plunder belongs to us, 400 and us only. 400 shares, not 600. Because the plunder belongs to the actual warriors. And notice... They're jumping in there. They're jumping the gun even before David has made any mention of how the plunder is going to be divided up. They want to make sure that it's going to fall in their favor. Even as they're marching back, after the joy of victory, they're already making the calculations in their head about how much they get and how much the others do not get. And they want to intervene because before their rightful share, as they imagine it, gets reduced by a third. And you can feel their resentment at those who have been relaxing back at the brook while they have been 
in the dust and blood of battle. But David shuts down this talk immediately. And there's a theological principle at stake. There's a God reason behind what David says. Because this is not plunder that we have earned by our own effort. It's a gift of God. The Lord gave us this victory. And he protected us and he delivered the enemy into our hands. It's a gift from God. And David is reminding his men that the reward comes through grace, not through works. The plunder comes through the sheer generosity of God, not through human achievement. And God's anointed operates on a completely different economy than the world does. What we find to be common sense and just and fair. God's anointed operates on completely different terms. You know, there are two different responses to prosperity. One is to congratulate ourselves, to assume, of course, it's what I deserve, it's what I've earned, it's come to me through my effort, and therefore I respond greedily and selfishly. And I resent others sharing in what they don't deserve and what they have not earned, unlike myself. That is how the wicked, worthless men respond. The other response is to recognize this is the deliverance of God and to have a joy-filled, overflowing delight at the mercy of God, which naturally and happily results in overflowing generosity to those who are in need. And it wasn't timed this way, but this is a very good passage for the day after Reformation Day, October 31st. I'm reminded even in this Old Testament passage buried deep in 1 Samuel that it's by grace that we have been saved through faith. Not from yourself. It's a gift from God. And therefore, what makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you've not received as a sheer gift from God? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not? And so David establishes his first law as king. The foundational principle of David's kingdom, a statute and an ordinance to this day, is that we share and share alike. Those who go to battle... And those who stay behind with the baggage, we all share alike. One brotherhood, one army, one captain, one victory. Because the joy of the king's triumph belongs to everyone equally. The rich and the poor, the strong and the weak, those with great gifts, and those with very small and insignificant gifts, those who accomplish tremendous things for the kingdom, and those who seem to accomplish very little. And in the economy of God's grace, we all sit equally around the table of God. Because we're his family. Because we're his sons 
and his daughters. And Jesus, the son of David, reinforced this when he told the story of the workers in the vineyard. Remember Matthew chapter 20? The master who hires workers in the morning for one denarius and then others at different times of the day. And in the end, they're all paid the same wage. Those who have toiled under the sun for the whole day, those who have worked only for a single hour, they're all given a single denarius for their day's work. And to those who complain, the master says, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Are you envious because I am generous? And there is a radical egalitarianism in the kingdom of God. We're all at the same level that goes completely against the merit-based system of all human societies. Simply not the way the kingdom of God works. And this text, this chapter, is a rebuke to those of us who have become proud. We think that because God is using us for great things, because we're so productive in his kingdom, because we've accomplished so much for him, because of the great evidence of fruit in our lives and our ministry, that somehow we're more valued by him than those we imagine to be below us, who have not done quite as much as we have for God. And 1 Samuel 30 warns us to guard against a a wicked and worthless heart that congratulates ourselves and resents those who are smaller and weaker than ourselves. A hoarding, miserly heart that gets angry when others receive what we don't feel that they deserved. We must beware of falling into pride and legalism and losing the joy of the gospel and becoming hard, bitter people, forgetting that we're unprofitable servants and beloved sons and daughters. And this chapter also has such wonderful encouragement to those of us who feel ourselves to be small and weak, because truly there are no little people in the kingdom of God. No little people in God's kingdom. And perhaps there are some of us today who feel very weak in the service of God. We love Jesus, but we're frustrated at how little we're actually able to do for him because of frailty of body, weakness of mind, weakness of soul, We might be the kind of person who is often assaulted by doubts, by attacks from the evil one, cast down and discouraged. We constantly have to wrestle for the little faith that we do have. We're not like those robust, optimistic, naturally faith-filled people who charge out with joy for the kingdom. We're just fighting to keep our own heads above water and survive. We wish we could follow after Jesus and do great exploits but our legs won't obey us and we have to be left behind to guard the baggage at the brook, Bessor. When Jesus returns in victory, 
He doesn't return to rebuke us for our smallness and for our weakness. He's not one of those wicked, worthless fellows who are angry at those who are weak. And Jesus, the anointed one, doesn't greet his loyal servants with condemnation, with rebuke, with anger. He knows the hearts of everyone who wears his uniform. And he knows those who are truly faithful and those who are not. I love how when David returns, the weak don't even have to stand up and defend themselves because the king is the advocate for the weak. The king steps in to defend the weak and take up their cause and advocate for them, which is just what Jesus does. And what he values is not your fruitfulness, but your faithfulness. Whether or not you are fruitful is a sheer gift of God. It has very little to do with your heart before him. There are very fruitful people who do great things for the kingdom, and Jesus will say, away from me, I never knew you. And there are those who seem to do very little for Jesus that are deeply valued by him. In the last week of his life, Jesus was sitting in the temple watching. And as he sat there, a bent-over widow came and dropped in two copper coins into the offering basket. She did not know her Lord was watching. And I imagine she felt very discouraged at how little she had to give. Two copper coins, basically nothing. But Jesus was there. And he saw her and he honored her. Because he rejoices to lavish his goodness on the weak as well as the strong. At the end of our chapter, we find David, who's been given this awesome spoil. Instead of hoarding it for himself, he spreads out the wealth and he sends out blessing and gifts to his friend in Judah. Because God's true king establishes his rule by giving. He establishes his rule by giving. David is such a true picture of Jesus in this chapter. The risen king, the risen Lord, who establishes a kingdom governed by the strange economy of grace, where people are not valued for their productivity. Simply, strangely, mysteriously, because they're loved by God. None of us deserve anything, and yet we find ourselves welcomed into his kingdom, sharing in the victory, given reward for which we have not fought, and invited to celebrate with Jesus and just to receive the goodness of God. Shall we bow our heads and thank God for this wonderful grace? Heavenly Father, we come before you as truly unprofitable servants. Forgive us for imagining that we are important and essential for your kingdom, for telling ourselves that what you have given us has somehow been our own achievement through our own works. Forgive us for that offensive idolatry, Lord, and help us to open our hands and joyfully receive from you. 
Lord, we confess that we are sinners, that we are lost without you, that we are dead without you, and yet you came down for us. You sent your son to die on the cross, to rise from the dead, to conquer sin and death and the devil for our sakes. And somehow we find ourselves carried up in your victory, sharing in your risen life, purely as gift. Oh Lord, may we never lose the joy of the gospel, of simply receiving from you what we cannot earn by ourselves. May we never become hard, miserly, bitter people like the older brother, resentful at those that you welcome into your kingdom. But give us gracious, kingly hearts like Jesus Christ himself, celebrating a God who loves to lavish himself on the undeserving. And Lord, may this truly help us strengthen ourselves in your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.